Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. And Michael read the passage for us this morning. We're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark because we've come to the passage that references God the Father. And we're going to get to see His response to the cross this morning. I'm always amazed at the providence of God, how He weaves it all together. This was not planned that we would, uh, at least not for my part, that we would land on this passage on Father's Day. But here we are. As we've approached the death of our Lord, we've, we've looked at several characters that play a vital role leading up to the crucifixion, the preparation stage, we, we looked at a number of people. There were, the, there were the rulers who plotted his death. There was the woman who anointed him beforehand, Jesus says, prophetically for his burial. There was Judas who betrayed him, the disciples in the upper room, Peter who then boasted and, and then ultimately, we know, denied the Lord. At his arrest, we were introduced to the soldiers who, who came in the horde in the middle of the night up the Kidron Valley. Um, Malchus, who temporarily lost his ear, the servant of the high priest. At the trial, we saw Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then at the Roman trial, we, we met Pilate and Herod and the crowd who cried, crucify him. We even met... Uh, a Cyrenian named Simon that we didn't know was on the way to the cross who was known by Mark's readers. The one person that we haven't heard from yet is God the Father. He's been in the background ordaining, overworking, orchestrating everything that has been, has been taking place, but today he's going to visit Golgotha. And when he does, it's a humbling and, and also revealing scene. If I would have to pull one thing out of the Bible that I would say is the, the most significant, I, I would say it's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's the, that's the linchpin of, 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 of history. But if I would say, what's the, what's the high watermark of the crucifixion? I would say, it's the passages that we're looking at the, the, this morning, verses 33 through 39. It's, it's when darkness comes to the land of Israel. It's when hell comes bearing down upon the sun. And it's when he completes his, his atoning work. The Bible says, at the sixth hour, which is noon, all of Judea went black. And it remains dark for three hours as God visited Golgotha. And the scene reveals to us the Father's response to the cross, what's going on in the cross. And, and there's a total of three replies that you can see here from the Father. And so that's the, that's the outline it's the Father's response to the cross, and the first response is in the catastrophe of darkness in verse 33 that fell over the land. The second is the reason for Jesus' cry of desolation in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And then the third response of the father is found in the contrast of descriptions of what what just happened. That's in verses 35 through 39. There's one from bystanders, there's one from the father, and then there's one from a centurion that we'll see at the very at the very end. And I'll tell you, these passages are packed. Um, and I hope I can get through them and do it justice for you this morning. There was at one point in my study where I couldn't, I couldn't read, I couldn't write, I couldn't do anything. I pushed my chair back from my desk and I got down on my face and said nothing. And I hope that's your experience as you see Christ and the Father's response. The first thing that you see is the catastrophe of darkness that, that comes on the land of, of Israel. Look if you would at verse 33. It says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, we've already been through this, but the sixth hour would have been noon, according to the, the Jewish day. The day begins at 6 a.m., it's now high noon, it's when the sun is at its brightest and hottest point. It's when you come off of the beach and go in and have a hot dog or lunch because you don't want to be out in the middle of the sun. This is the moment when this takes place according to <clears throat> verse 33. Now, Jesus was placed on the cross at 9 a.m. and at the... At noon, three hours later, darkness falls over Jerusalem. Luke 23.45 says the sunlight failed. That's the, the literal translation. It, it fails. Darkness fills the entire interval from noon until the very end of the, of the crucifixion. Now imagine it's, it's noontime in the middle of the day and you're going about your business in Jerusalem it's Passover, and so the city is packed with millions of people. Families are gathering for the Passover meal. There are people that, that are taking their lambs to the Passover to the priest to be sacrificed. There are mothers at home getting, getting, getting things ready for the family to come over for the sacrificial meal to remember the Passover. And at the zenith of the day, all of a sudden, the lights go out. There's no electricity then, and so... That obviously would have caught your attention, and that was obviously God's point. Now, I've heard all kinds of explanations. You probably have, too, for, for what this is. Some try to dismiss it as a solar eclipse or some natural phenomena. I actually read one guy said that this must be um, a dust storm that came up from the, from the Dead Sea and, and blacked out the sun, and none of that is... It's possible. It's not possible that it's a solar eclipse. It's the full moon because it's Passover. So you can't have a solar eclipse when there's a full moon. I even read people that said that this, this is actually the devil. The devil overshadowing the cross as he did his, his wicked work. The Bible rejects all of those things outright. This was a miracle. This was not a natural occurrence. This is not a dust storm. It's not an eclipse. It's impossible. And the devil's not doing anything. He's in the corner somewhere sucking his thumb. He doesn't want the cross to take place. He knows it's going to put him to open shame. He's not in control of Calvary. The Father is. The Son is. And this darkness is the Father coming on the scene. And it's three things. 
It's prophetic, it's symbolic, and it's, it's a message. It declares something. It's prophetic because it echoes what was foretold in the Old Testament would happen. It's symbolic because of what happened at the first Passover. And it's a declaration of what's going to happen to the leaders of Israel and anyone who, who rejects Christ. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, which we've been looking at in Revelation, is, is prophesied as, as coming in darkness. The, one of the very first things that comes on the scene before God's judgment, before the day of the Lord... Is, is darkness. It's a, it's a sign in the Bible of divine judgment. Amos chapter 5 says, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Joel chapter 1, or chapter uh, 2, I should say, tells us what is going to, what it's going to be like. Joel 1.15 says, Alas, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as destruction from the Almighty. Then chapter 2, verses 10 says, This is what it will be like. The earth will quake, the heavens will tremble, the sun and the moon will go dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Verse 30 says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. If you're not convinced by that, Amos... Chapter 8, verse 9 is very specific. It will come about in that day. What day? In the day of the Lord. Declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. This is prophetic. It's what's happening. It's a foreshadowing. It's a, it's a, it's a reverb of what's going to take place in the future. It's like, a, it's like the first beep of, a, of, a, of the smoke detector before it eventually goes off sometime later, warning you that the battery is low, and if you don't change it at 3 o'clock in the morning, all of them are going to go off, and they're going to wake the whole house up. That's what this is. Darkness on Calvary is a foreshadowing of this day. It symbolizes God's wrath. It's... It symbolizes the Father's presence in divine judgment. And every good Jew would know Amos and Joel and know about the day of the Lord. And their response to this darkness should have been repentance. Because they know all of this. It was a warning sign ahead of time. And I began to think about all of the warning signs that God graciously brought in my life before He ever brought the consequences. And maybe He's done that for you. Maybe telling you through a friend, don't go that way before you ever go that way. Maybe a parent warning you ahead of time that you dismiss as nagging or whatever it might be. Maybe a closed door that you keep trying to force open. I think if there's any practical application to this, heed the warnings. They're God's grace to you before He has to bring suffering grace in your life to bring you back. The darkness is prophetic. It's also symbolic. Not only should the Jewish people remember Amos and Joel in the day of the Lord, but they should also remember the last time that darkness came around Passover. This is Passover, right? Again, don't forget what's going on in the background. 
right in the middle of the Passover, millions of people in Jerusalem, while the Passover lambs are being slaughtered, it goes black. Do you remember what happened during the first Passover? The Jews sure would have. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Now, you think this is a coincidence? This is not a coincidence. Darkness covered the land of Egypt, and it was a sign that God gave before the final plague, which was the killing of the firstborn. It symbolized God's curse that was about to rest on Egypt. And it was coming if, if Pharaoh didn't repent. This was a, a pre-warning of the killing of the firstborn. And you know the story. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he wouldn't listen to God. And so that plague came. And that was the beginning of the first Passover. And God instructed his people. He warned them this is coming and you apply the blood over the lentil, you kill the lamb, and I will pass over you. The death angel will pass over you. Judgment will pass over you. And now that same darkness rests on the land of Israel. At the final Passover, while Jesus Christ is on the cross. There's so much symbolism here. Bondage in Egypt in the Bible represents sin. God's deliverance from Egypt is a symbol of, of salvation. And now God is about to, to curse Israel as He curses His own firstborn for them. But before He does, He warns His own people not to harden their hearts. You see the amazing, unfathomable grace here? I mean, the cross is filled with opportunity after opportunity, pleading after pleading to stop, to turn around, to wake up, and in their hardness and their blindness, they just plow right on. God might be doing that for you as well today. The message, this message is a plea. Listen to God's Son and don't harden your heart. Sadly, the leaders of Israel were just like Pharaoh. They even reject this final call, and so God declares their end. It's prophetic, it's symbolic. And it declares something. Look, if you would, at Mark 15, verse 32. Look at the verse right before, verse 33, right before the darkness comes. What are the leaders of Israel asking for? Verse 31 tells us who's talking. The chief priests, along with the scribes, they're mocking him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. What do they ask for? Let this Christ, the King of Israel now, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. They ask for, for a sign. And the sign would be that Jesus would come down from the, from the cross. This has echoes in my mind of Satan when he takes him up to the, the corner of the temple and says, cast yourself down. You won't be hurt. The sudden darkness is the sign that they requested. It's just not the, the one that they, that they asked for. It's also a confirmation of Jesus' words. After they ask, 
when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the, over the land. They didn't get that sign, but God gives them another one. It's a sign declaring what was coming. Jesus said when the religious rulers earlier asked for a sign, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the The sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds this. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here. Now, those are ominous words. Watch the tenses. Jesus says no sign will be given other than his death and resurrection. And yet they won't believe. This generation, at the judgment, which is future, those who repented in the past at the preaching of Jonah, they will rise up and condemn the leaders now. God's declaring that now with the darkness. Why will they rise up and condemn? Because the Ninevites, wicked, unbelieving Gentiles, repented at the message, and you didn't hear my words, though a greater messenger is here. Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, and you will not repent at the Son of God's. And you won't believe if I get off the cross or when I rise from the dead. So so here is the sign for you. It's one declaring your end. God didn't bring judgment on them right then because He's pouring it out on His Son. But the sign was a declaration of what was coming in the future. And it's the same thing that Jesus has already told them in the trial. Do you remember back in the trial? Now the Father just confirms what Jesus said in the trial. In the trial, when they were bringing false testimony against Jesus, you remember they can't get anybody to corroborate and, and Caiaphas thinks the whole thing's falling apart. So he steps forward, takes the role as a prosecutor when he's supposed to sit in the back, and, he, and he, he demands that Jesus tell him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And you remember that's the, that's the only question that Jesus answers. And he says, I am. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a quote from Daniel 7.13. That's when the Ancient of Days comes in the end, in the, in the judgment clouds. I am, and you're rejecting me, and because of that, when you see me, I'm going to be coming for you in judgment. That's what Jesus says to the high priest in the trial. He rips his robes and says, blasphemy, what else do we, do we need? And they throw him in the, in the dungeon to await the morning trial to confirm it all. The darkness is the Father echoing Christ's words, the judgment that's about to come, both from the symbol of the Passover and and the sign from the day of the Lord. God did this at every significant moment in Christ's ministry. At the baptism, Jesus steps forward as the substitute for Israel. 
And the Father then confirms exactly what the Son steps forward to do. Do you remember at the baptism? The Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased or completely satisfied. Jesus says, Fulfill all righteousness, John, baptize me. And the Father confirms the words of the Son. Father makes a declaration. His work will be accepted. He's not satisfied with you. He's not satisfied with me, which is why John's calling us to repentance. But I'm completely satisfied with my son. The Father confirms that. He does it again at the transfiguration. Right after Peter and all of the disciples go to Caesarea Philippi and they say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first time they've done that. The first time they've made that confession. Jesus says, based upon that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And then he tells them how he's going to do that. Mark 8, 31, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the, the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then he goes to the transfiguration. And the Father confirms that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he will suffer as the Messiah. He immediately goes up to the mountain. He's transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and the Father confirms the Son's words. Do you remember what happens at the transfiguration? There is a cloud that overshadows them, and a voice comes out of the cloud that says, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Listen to him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to his message. Listen to his words. He's exactly who he said. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And now at the cross, when the son is completing that work, the father shows up again in darkness and confirms the words of the son, the coming judgment that will come by the son on the last day. And you and I don't need a sign like that. You say, wow, if I had a sign like that, I'd repent. I mean, if God spoke to me audibly, I, I would just drop everything and repent. If the sky went black like that for me, if I saw Jesus walk on water, Peter says we have something even more sure than all of those things. You wouldn't believe then. You'd say it was a natural phenomenon or your eyes played tricks on you or, or it was a fat flashback from a bad acid trip or whatever else that you can think of. Peter says we have something more sure than signs. We have the Word of God. The Word of God declares to us it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. And that's what's coming in the future unless you come to the sun. Way more sure than what they saw. And the darkness pointed them back to the Word of God and to the words of Jesus. And that's what's coming to the mockers. Because Christ bore the judgment on the cross. It's the second response of the Father. You can, you can see it. You can't hear it. But you can see it. You cry of desolation because it's not words. Look at verse 34. It says, At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elahi, Elahi, Lama Shabachthani, in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, in Greek. And Mark translates it for us. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By this time, Jesus has already made three statements from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the first thing he says. First things out of his mouth, after the scourging, after they put him on the cross, is Father, forgive them for they don't understand what they're doing. The second thing he says is to Mary, his mother, and John. To Mary, he says, woman, behold your son. To John, he says, behold your mother. Because Jesus' brothers were not believers yet. Mary is a believer. And so he commits his mother to John, even though there's other family members that, that are there. The family that you have and the family of God will stick closer to you than your blood. You remember that. The third thing he says was to the thief dying on the cross. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. And now he makes this fourth statement at the very end. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One commentator said this is a cry of dereliction. It's taken from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And Jesus cries out in agony and in affirmation. Don't miss the fact that Jesus quotes the words of Scripture Don't miss the fact that he's in agony. Don't miss the fact that he says, My God, my God, before he talks about being forsaken. In this one statement, you can see Christ's faithfulness and the fulfillment of his mission. He obediently fulfills the task in agony, the agony of being forsaken. And he faithfully affirms his future by saying, my God, my God, and quoting the Bible as he does it. What's happening in this moment? I shuddered thinking about it. This is the moment when Jesus took divine wrath for sinners. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus uses the term God instead of Father. Jesus has never been separated from the Father, but He is in this moment. He's not separated from God's presence because that's impossible. God is everywhere, even in hell. It's God's abandonment that He experiences. Jesus is experiencing the presence of God's wrath and the absence of His comfort in this moment. In this moment, Christ felt the sinner's abandonment of God and His holy wrath that cuts the sinners off from divine mercy. That's what He's feeling right now. He senses the very absence of God's mercy in this moment. And his complete abandonment because he was bearing our sin. I've told you this before, but you should not think that somehow the bodily pain of the cross or the physical wounds are what saves you. Jesus must bear eternal punishment, which is eternal separation from God's goodness in hell. 
this is an experience that no one has had prior to this other than those who are in hell. Before this moment, nobody on earth has ever been completely cut off. Nobody on earth today, even unbelievers, even atheists, even blasphemers, they're not completely cut off from God. Atheists and blasphemers experience the presence of God in common grace. They experience grace in creation. The sun rises and sets, the just as well as the unjust. An unbeliever can get up in the morning and he can experience the warmth of the sun and, wow, that feels great. What does he do with it? Let's go party, let's do whatever. He doesn't give thanks to the God who created it, but he experiences that grace. An unbeliever experiences the blessings of marriage and children and food, rest at night. Unbelievers even feel and experience the sanctifying effect of the Word and the the church, even though they reject it all. But there will be nothing in hell. In hell, a person who rejects God's mercy now will be cut off from God and all of His goodness completely. God is not absent in hell. It's His judgment that's being poured out on the sinner. God's omnipresent. What is absent in hell is all of the goodness and mercy. That will be absent. Only the fires of divine wrath will be present. And Jesus has offered Himself as a substitute to bear all of that. So now in judgment, He experiences the full alienation and the judgment that, that is to come and all of that, that that it entails. This is the cup that, that Jesus doesn't want to drink. I mean, I couldn't have went through the scourging. You couldn't have went through the scourging. You couldn't have went to the cross. But that's not what Jesus fears. What He cries out to God for strength or what He prays to be strengthened to do. This is the cup. And He drinks it all. And it wasn't just a cup for one person, but every sinner who would believe. In those three hours... Jesus received the eternal wrath that every sinner in history who would ever believe should receive in hell or would receive in hell. And that wrath requires a never-ending period of time for one sinner. And Jesus took that for all sinners in a three-hour period, condensed in undiluted form. No normal human being could do that. But Jesus could because He was God. He could receive an infinite, eternal amount of wrath because he was an infinite and eternal person. This is why he sweat great drops of blood. This is the agony of the cross. This is why the Bible places emphasis on the rejection and then the judgment, the darkness, and the abandonment. And yet Jesus never doubted the outcome. He cries, my God, my God. He doesn't say Father because he's experiencing the alienation from the Father. But he never doubts that there is a God and God is his and he never doubts the ending. Even in his abandonment, Jesus knew that he would be exalted. Hebrews chapter 12. 
tells us, for the joy set before Him. He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's His affirmation. My God, my God. Jesus knew the throne was coming. And He affirms that even in this statement whenever He's absorbing eternal wrath for you. Look if you look at the third response. There's a contrast of of description. Jesus knew the throne was coming, and the Father does as well, and the Father responds, and so do two other people. There are three responses to what's happening at, at Calvary, described by three distinct people. There's the detractors who ask a question in verse 35. Look at verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, heard what? Heard what Jesus just said with a loud voice. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him, to, gave him a drink saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Mark says the bystanders, that that includes the the crowds, the leaders of Israel that were there that were hurling, mocking. and, And now we find out how will people who are witnessing this supernatural darkness, how are they going to respond? Are they going to remember the darkness of the Passover? Are they going to remember the coming day of the Lord? Are they going to go, wow, what do we do? Well, here's your answer. At the end of three hours of darkness... They don't repent. They don't repent at the Father's presence, and they don't repent at seeing the Son suffering. The minute the darkness subsides and they hear Jesus cry, they begin the mockery again. They, they heard him say, um, Eli, Eli, and they, they thought they were, he was crying for Elijah. There's a lot of Jewish tradition, superstitious stories about Elijah. And you remember Elijah didn't die. He was one of those in the Old Testament that didn't die. He was taken up into heaven. And so because he didn't die, he was taken up into heaven. There's, there's all kinds of Jewish superstitious stories that Elijah will come and rescue the righteous whenever they're in need. And they think that Jesus is calling on Elijah and they're saying he's calling on Elijah to rescue him because he's righteous. Let's see if Elijah will come and take the righteous one down. I think that's the idea here. Let's see if he comes. Let's see if he saves him. This is mockery. This is sarcasm. They even give him a a drink to keep him alive a a little longer. Or wet his mouth so they could hear what what else he would say. Um... This sour wine is mentioned twice, two different ways in the Bible. Um, it's for cruelty, and it's, it's also something to, to sustain 
life. It's uh, something that they gave people who were who were dehydrated or or close to death. And they give him this to see what will happen. Prolong his agony. Elijah doesn't show up, but God does in a very profound way. Here is the the Father's declaration. If you would at verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There's the Father. It says he cried out and he breathed his last. Do you know what he cried whenever he cried out? It wasn't like a death moan. John 19.30 tells us, Therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. To telestai. It's accomplished. One word. And He breathed His last. He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. This is not a victim. This is a victor. <laughs> this is not a man suffering and succumbing to death's grip. This is a powerful and purposeful cry declaring His course has been completed. And he makes one final statement in Luke 23. Into your hands I commit my spirit. MacArthur said, he says, three things before the darkness, nothing during the darkness, and four statements after the darkness. And he breathed his last. And breathed his last doesn't mean that, that he gave up. Oh, I give up. It's the idea that he chose to die at that very moment just as he has borne God's full fury and eternal hell, concentrated in three hours, he is still alive, he's fully alive, he's able to cry out with a loud voice, and he died while in complete sovereign control over the moment. Because the Bible says no man took his life, he willingly laid it down. And once Christ declared his work was accomplished, he left the body that was prepared for him in the incarnation and when he did, the Father responds, and it's described. He declares what just happened. Look at verse 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The bystanders see the cross, and it's still nothing but a joke. They don't even repent with blackness for three hours. The Father declares it's the end of the Old Covenant and the opening of the New. That's what has come, that's what He says. Now again, don't forget what's going on in the background. You're focused on the cross, and you should be because you're a Christian. The right in the middle of the Passover, while the priests are in the temple, slinging blood, sacrificing thousands of Passover lambs, while this is happening, with all of this activity, after three hours of darkness, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom while it's full of priests and full of blood. And they're not in the holies of holies, but they're outside administering the Passover sacrifice. And as we already said, there was so much blood that the Kidron Valley ran red during this time. And as they're doing this, the thick curtain of the holies of holies, the place that only the high priest 
Nebuchadnezzar once a year on the Day of Atonement is torn from the top to bottom completely in two, completely opening up the way into the very presence of God. And that curtain was purposeful because no one in the Old Covenant had direct access to God. No one. You had to go through the priesthood and only the high priest got direct access to God's presence once a year. There's the Ark of the Covenant that's in the Holies of Holies. There's the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. What's down inside of the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments signifying the broken commandments of man. There's the mercy seat. God meets in the Old Covenant man on the mercy seat that He provided. And what the priest does is he sprinkles the blood of the, of the innocent lamb on the, of the sacrifice on the mercy seat the presence of God hovers above the Ark of the Covenant with the broken commandments and the holiness of God, the broken law of, uh, of God and blood between them. So when God looks through the blood, He doesn't see the broken commandments and bring judgment on the earth. And that is behind a curtain, separated, and now that has been flung open. You can imagine their shock and horror you don't go in there, even look in there because of God's holiness. And now it's wide open because it's been torn from top to bottom to show who opened it, and it was God Himself. The writer said, At 3 p.m., at the very moment God sacrificed His own Passover lamb, and Jesus Christ made full atonement, God interprets it by this act of opening the temple and ending the Old Covenant. This is the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New. The shadows pass away. The sacrifices are no longer needed. The priesthood is voided. The temple was no longer the place where God would meet His people. The way is now open to all who will repent and believe, and it's not through priests or rituals or anything else. It's through Christ's victorious sacrifice and Christ alone. Hallelujah! Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us the entire priesthood, the temple, and the sacrificial system was temporary. It was only to point to this point. When the one sacrifice was to come, and so all that's become pointless because the only sacrifice that saves has already been made. There's one mediator between God and man, and Christ Jesus died once for all. It's the declaration that God accepts the Son's sacrifice. It's a declaration that the temple was over. And do you know who was the very first person to walk through that open veil? that God throws open? Look at verse 39. It's a Gentile executioner. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The priests performing the rituals, see the holies of holies being opened up. They see the darkness. They don't make this declaration. The first one who does 
as a Gentile executioner. And here's the final response. It's the centurion's deduction. This man was not a believer before the cross, but he leaves the cross a believer. This man's probably the one that's in charge of the execution. He's a centurion, so he's a commander of at least 100 men. He's been there the whole time. He's, pro- he's been there during the trial. He po- was probably there during the arrest. He saw the scourging, probably oversaw it. He saw the mocking. He heard every statement that Jesus made. He saw the darkness. He saw Jesus not retaliate. He saw Jesus being willing to receive it. And now he sees the end and he hears him declare it's accomplished and then die. And he draws his conclusion. Truly, surely, this man was the Son of God. But notice what caused him to believe. It's right there in plain sight in verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, so there's who he is, there's what he's been doing the whole time, when he saw the way that he breathed his last. Do you notice that? When the centurion saw that he expired in this manner, it's the best way to read that. The implication is there was something about the way that he died that caused the centurion to make this statement and draw this finally a final conclusion. This man has seen thousands of people die in battle and also on a cross if he's the head of the execution squad. And yet there was something different about Jesus. He concluded this was a divine death. He affirms that Jesus didn't expire. Jesus chose to die at that moment. He was alive and then He chose to die. He left His body. And that was the final evidence that this man needed. It was evident to him that it was his choice and it was not forced by death itself. Jesus was in control, not his body's weakness or the cross of the Romans, not even death itself. He laid down his life after he accomplished his mission at his sovereign choosing. He separated his spirit from his earthly body. And this man says, truly, I believe. And notice what he calls him. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, what do the Romans place over his over his his head? What's in the Roman trial? What's in the Jewish trial is that Jesus is the Christ, and he's condemned for blasphemy for saying that he's the son. He's the son. He's the Christ. In the Roman trial, he's the king of the Jews, and yet this man makes a completely different declaration. He says, "Truly, this man was the Son of God." And that's Mark's theme from the very first verse. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark says, here is the beginning, the beginning record that I'm going to write to you, the good news of the Son of God. And we've been walking through that for 15 chapters, line upon line, word by word. And that's how Mark begins. And now here at the end, a centurion declares... Surely this man was the Son of God. The first two people saved at the cross were a blaspheming Jew, a criminal, and an unclean Gentile, a thief and an executioner. 
You think that Jesus saves to the uttermost? You better believe He does. I don't care what you've done or where you've been. Jesus Christ can cleanse your sin if you'll come to Him. And both did it by responding to Christ and both did it after considering the cross. But the unbelieving leaders and the bystanders walk away even after an earthquake. They walk away, the Bible says, beating their breasts after he dies. They came to see whatever they came to see. Forget this man. And they only have divine darkness to face in the future. The Bible says hell is outer darkness because it's the absence of God's mercy and the presence of God's judgment. And the Bible says heaven has no need of light because the glory of the sun shines from the throne. Not the Father, but the Son. The Son is the centerpiece of heaven. And whether you experience divine darkness or whether you experience the glory of the Son has everything to do with what you do with the cross of Jesus Christ as you consider it. No one does that for you. You hear, you consider, and you believe or you reject. And I guess the question is, which will you experience? Well, that will depend upon what you do with Jesus and His cross. You'll meet Him there offering you salvation or you'll meet Him in the end in darkness. And I'd plead with you, don't follow the leader's path. Follow this wicked centurion's path who declared, surely this man was the Son of God and as the Son of God, He can wipe away all of my sins. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Put you by your heads.